morning, shalom. Welcome to our Aliyah day. Glad to be with you, everyone. We have, this is the second Aliyah of Parashah Vayikra. And so we've been talking about the, uh, the significance of the offerings and what they mean spiritually and materially and historically and bringing down insights thereof. So the second Aliyah begins in uh, the book of um, Leviticus, as we say Vayikra in Hebrew. The second Aliyah begins in chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. So let's go ahead and read the second Aliyah, and then we will uh, dive into the various insights and points. And as you might expect, there are many. So uh, verse 14 begins, If one's offering to Adonai is an elevation offering of fowl, he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from young doves. The Kohen shall bring it to the altar, nip its head, and cause it to go up in smoke on the altar having pressed out its blood on the altar's wall. Verse 16. He shall remove its crop with its feathers, and he shall throw it near the altar toward the east to the place of the ashes. He shall split it with its feathers. He need not sever it. The Kohen shall cause it to go up in smoke on the altar and on the wood that is on the fire. It is an elevation offering, that is an Ola offering, a fire offering, a satisfying aroma to Adonai. <clears throat> Chapter 2. When a person offers a meal offering to Adonai, his offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil upon it and place frankincense upon it. He shall bring it to the sons of Aaron the Kohen, one of whom shall scoop his three fingers full from it, from its fine flour and from its oil, as well as all the frankincense. And the Kohen shall burn its memorial portion upon the altar. It is a fire offering, a satisfying aroma to Adonai. So this too, um, uh, this Minka offering is also an Ola offering. A satisfying aroma to Adonai. Verse 3, the remnant of the meal offering is for Aaron and his sons. It is most holy from the fire offerings of Adonai. When you offer a meal offering that is baked in an oven... It shall be of fine flour, unleavened loaves, mixed with oil, or unleavened wafers smeared upon it. Note that whenever we give an offering, we're not allowed to offer it with leaven. Why? Because leaven represents uh, a puffing up. Some people say that leaven represents sin, but in fact, that is not entirely accurate. Leaven does not necessarily represent sin, it represents the root of sin, which is that which puffs up. When we get puffed up, when we get arrogant, when we think that we know more than God, that we can um, look at God's word, for instance, and figure out which ones are for today and which ones aren't, and which, which one did he get wrong, which one did he get right, which one did he make a mistake on, those kind of things, that, that is leaven. And that is chametz. And so what happens is we get puffed up and we think that we're, we know more than God, we're better than God. And that's where sin enters in. So we're not allowed to have that in any of our offerings. We're not allowed to have any element in our offering. Think about that. Any element in our offering that insinuates that we have pride, that we have arrogance, that we're above God. So when we're offering up our offering, whether it's prayer or mitzvah or tzedakah, whatever it happens to be to Hashem, we have to do it with the absence of hamids. This is what, te- what, what this is the lesson we're to learn. With the offerings, is also the lesson we're to learn uh, during the entire time that we have um, 
uh, Pesach, where we're not eating leavened bread. <clears throat> so it says in, um, in verse 5, if you offer, if your offering rather is a meal offering on the pan, it shall be a fine flour mixed with oil, it shall be unleavened. There it is, unleavened again. Verse 6, you shall break it into pieces and pour oil upon it. It is a meal offering. So that's the reading, that's the end of the second reading, uh, Aliyah. So let's go back and look at a few points. A lot, most of these that we're going to be talking about uh, harken back to the first Aliyah, but the, the first Aliyah was so full of information we didn't get a chance to cover everything. <clears throat> so we have offerings. One of the unique principles about the temple and the tabernacle is that it was uh, open for everybody. And I think this is where people get confused. Um, because there's a difference between being a uh, uh, someone who's in the covenant and someone who's outside the, outside the covenant, but, but able to approach or come into the house of God, so to speak. Most people may not even realize that a non-Jew, a Gentile, was allowed to bring an offering to the temple. Um, there was a court to the Gentiles. There was an area that they were not allowed to, to wander past. And there was a sign, uh, evidently, that said that no uncircumcised person is allowed to go beyond this path, point uh, except on pain of death. Um, so just on that note for a second, because that gets spoken about a lot in many congregations, and it's also seen as a negative thing that the Jews are so mean, the rabbis are so evil, the Torah was so hard, the Old Testament was so restrictive, you weren't allowed to go beyond the point. That's really not what the sign says. Think about it. If you're a non-Jew, you come to the temple, and there's a, there's a point at, at which you find yourself standing in front of a sign that says that you're not allowed to go beyond this point unless you're circumcised. And if, you're, if you do that and you're not circumcised, then you're going to suffer potentially death. So it depends on how you read the sign. For a lot of people, with the right heart, that's an invitation. It means that if you get circumcised, you can go beyond that point. If you enter into covenant, you're welcome beyond that point. But if you choose, and the choice is indeed yours, if you choose to remain outside the fullness of the covenant, you can bring your offering, but you still can't draw any closer than where you already are. Some people suggest that we need to tear down the wall. We need to tear down the wall that divides. Well, wait a minute. The wall is divided between those who are in the covenant and those who are outside the covenant. So is that what we're trying to do? We're trying to tear down that wall? Or, do we, or, or is it better to suggest that we need to bring people in the covenant? Think about it for a second. I've used the analogy before many times, just an easy analogy, so I use it. If you go to a movie theater and it says no one's allowed in except unless you have a ticket, does that mean that you're supposed to go into the back door and, and break in? No, it means you're supposed to get a ticket. The point of the sign is to let you know that if you want to watch the movie, you need to buy the ticket, right? It's not to try to keep you out. Does the, does the, does the theater not want you to buy a ticket? Obviously, they want you to buy one. This is the point. So anyway, Rabbi Monk points out in his, um, in his writing here, it says that uh, in verse 2 of chapter 1, it says, Speak to the children of Israel, the Be'er El B'nai Israel. The law concerning the sacrifices are to be addressed primarily to the Jewish nation. And yet, the verse continues, When a man among you. 
So he points out that this word referring to men is Adam, implying that non-Jews as well can bring offerings, which is in, entirely correct. Non-Jews are allowed to bring offerings. Now, why do you think that was? Why do you think Hashem allowed non-Jews to bring their offering to the temple? Obviously, it was an opportunity for them to, to come close to the, the one and true God, for them to come to know God so that they would, they would become also members of the covenant. So anyway, it says, um, we are taught that the temple remains open to all men. That's true. Whatever their religion, the temple is open to all men. People can come. People very often will um, contact us uh, at Sar Shalom and say, is it okay for me to come if I'm not Jewish? Is it okay for me to come if I'm, not, if I'm a Christian or whatever and I just want, I'm just curious, want to, absolutely, you can come. It's like, uh, it, it's a, like a, a Migdash Mayat. It's like a small temple. You can come. Anybody can come. You can come and learn and uh, that type of thing. You know, and this, this is where other people get messed up as well. Because sometimes you see um, certain congregations, <clears throat> frankly, whether they're uh, Reformed synagogues or uh, Christian churches, and they say, our doors are open to everyone in this day and age. What that means is, if you're homosexual, if you're whatever, whatever, and part of the this, whatever, you can come. We accept everybody. And it's a perversion of what God intended. God said, listen, my house is open to anyone of any religion. Why? Because I want you to come and learn the truth. It doesn't mean that I'm open to your perverse way of life. So certainly anybody can come to our synagogue no matter what, right? Every sinner can come. Uh, some people uh, of, of certain perverted, perverted ideas can come. Absolutely. Why? Because we want them to hear the truth. We want them to make shuva. We want them to repent and turn back to the the, the uh, one true God. That's the purpose of opening the temple to everybody. But it doesn't, this is important because people have a difficult time with this and, and uh, I'm not quite sure why that is, but it's not a validation of your religious belief. So just because the temple is open to all men doesn't mean that God re accepts the religion of all men. It means that he welcomes you to come bring your offering to the one true God in order to learn about the one true God. Make sense? I hope it does. So it says, uh, this is found, by the way, where it says, everyone can bring his offering is found in the Talmud in Hulin 13b. The temple has a cosmopolitan character of it, he says. And yet, Rabbi Monk writes, our sages in the Midrash develop and stress the idea that God shows a special favor to the sacrifices offered by the people of Israel. There is a special dispensation, a special uh, um, anointing upon those who are in covenant. So if you're actually in covenant, your offering has a higher status. Moreover, the door is, is open, but it's not wide open. So we invite people to come, but doesn't, doesn't necessarily, we accept in all, all respects. We don't validate everybody who comes, but we still welcome them to come. By validation, I mean we're not going to validate necessarily your, um, you know, religious ideas or your your version of love. It's not. This is not a unity religion. To that point, Rabbi Monk writes: Although the idea of universality is, as it were, inscribed on the gateway to the temple, 
There are restrictions even on the Jewish people's role in offering. And that is offering sacrifices to God. Sinners are, of course, admitted to the service. And this is, goes to my point. Rabbi Monk writes, Sinners are, of course, admitted to the service. Why? It says here, quote, In order to bring them to repent. That's the whole point. In order to, re- to bring them not to, to or, excuse me, in order to bring them to repent, not to say, you know what, you're fine. The way you're living your life is, is okay. It's all love. It's all good. Uh, just bring your offering. It's all good. Nobody cares. No, we do care. That's why we're opening the door. We want you to become a member of the covenant. We want you to conform. Right? Conform to what? Conform to God's will. So it says, but Jews who have renounced the religion... Uh, Jews who have renounced their religion are excluded. Okay? I want to read this again. This is again from Rabbi Monk who's, who's saying here, Jews who renounce their religion are excluded. So much for the idea that just because you're Jewish, you're perfectly fine, no matter what. And there's, there's certain Jewish sects today that have that very same uh, idea that even if you're if you're Jewish but you're not practicing Judaism, if you've renounced the faith or whatever, it's okay. You're still Jewish. Well, maybe, but it but you're not. You're still excluded from the uh, the sacrificial service. That's that, my friends. That's actually what Halakha says. Um, so it says here uh, they're excluded, as are those who worship idols. Or publicly desecrate the laws of the Shabbat. That's from Hulin 5a. It says their behavior is incompatible with the claims of loyalty to God. On the other hand, former heathens who have converted to Judaism, former heathens who have converted to Judaism, are admitted with the same status as other Jews. Now this reminds me of something. On Shabbat, I was talking to uh, um, someone who's. Um, uh, been coming to our synagogue just for a, a little bit. They were at a messianic place uh, recently, apparently, and they were told by somebody in leadership there um, the age-old and completely uh, inaccurate and untrue statement that the word Gentile just means somebody from the nations. That is not true at all. The word Gentile, goy, means an idolater, a pagan. That is what it means, Period. That is the absolute definition, and also the way that it's used in uh, Jewish literature, ancient Jewish literature for all time, uh, speaks about somebody who is an idolater, a pagan, someone outside the faith, outside the covenant, even when it's used to speak of um, uh, the Noahide or whatever, it's still used in the context of somebody outside of covenant. Well, the reason I bring this up is because another synonym for uh, uh, Gentile is the word heathen. And so it says here, former heathens who have converted. So you cannot be a heathen and be a convert simultaneously. In other words, since heathen is a synonym for Gentile, you cannot be a Gentile and a convert at the same time. Okay? So it says, former heathens who have converted to Judaism are admitted with the same status as Jews. Why? Because a convert is like a Jew. And every single respect. <clears throat> so moving forward, again, touching back on a, a, a few things. Let's get back to the basics of these, uh, 
these offerings. These are the types of offerings that we are speaking about here uh, in the Aliyah. This, the first is the Ola offering. Let's just go over these really quickly. What's the difference between each of the offerings? The Ola offering is someone, is an offering that is completely burnt up on the altar. Completely offered up in its entirety. Okay, None of it is uh, eaten or whatever. And uh, the reason the Ola offer was brought, one of the reasons is, is because we have a sinful thought. We have sinful thoughts, sinful desires. We haven't acted upon those desires. We haven't acted upon those thoughts. Nevertheless, we need to bring an offering. As I spoke about yesterday, this is the refinement, uh, a, a symbol rather, of such a refined society. That we're not concerned with just our actions, but we're also concerned with our very thoughts which, uh, of course, harkens back in, in one's mind to what Yeshua talked about when he said, even if you look at a woman and you left out to her, you've committed adultery. So he's talking about the refinement of our, of our very uh, thinking. The Ola offering was also something to be offering, offered because you, you, you just um, want to give something to God. The second offering is the uh, Shalamim. Um, this is an offering of thanksgiving. Uh, in honor of a vow uh, that was uh, off, that was fulfilled, right? You bring that offering. The next offering talked about is the asham. That's the guilt offering. It's atonement for a sin, as it says here, of sacrilege or uh, a false oath regarding a theft or some type of, um, of of borderline sin involving doubt or what have you. And then, of course, we have the sin offering, the chatat offering. This is an offering of unintentional error, <clears throat> some uh, offering where we have uh, committed some offense such as this. So we see that not every offering is a sin offering, which is also a, a misnomer amongst uh, many people. Some offerings are offerings that we bring because they're offerings of thanksgiving. Some offerings we bring because they're offerings that uh, we have fulfilled the vow that we said we would make, and so we're bringing that offering. Some people have the idea that the, um, the temple was a place where only sinners came to offer uh, their offering, and, and that's the only means by which we had uh, salvation. That's not true at all. Uh, moreover, um, one might think that the, um, the temple was kind of um, a solemn place. That isn't it at all. The temple was every day bustling with people who were bringing all kinds of offerings. There was music being played 24-7 in the, in the temple by the Levites on a, on a special platform. The priests, there was 120 priests that was recorded in the Bible who would blow shofar out and over every offering, which means they were blowing the shofar nearly continually because of all the offerings that were being offered. It was a place of great prayer, great enthusiasm, the glory of God in the first temple, the column of smoke going up. They say that the... Uh, uh, the historians and the sages write that the column or the plume of smoke from the altar, no matter which way or how hard the wind was blowing, it always went straight up. It's amazing. So there's a lot of joy in giving the offering is the point. It's not supposed to be uh, just a, a solemn uh, occasion. Someone asked me um, on the Ask the Rabbi page uh, not too long ago about confession. Is it is it okay to pray silently? I think the, specifically the question was about writing writing out your prayers. Uh, absolutely, one can pray silently, um, of course. One can write out or journal your prayers, absolutely. But I should say, and I did say in that reply, that there is um, 
there is power the sages talk about in confession to actually speak out something, um, particularly when it pertains to sin. This is why um, when we have the, during the the uh, Rosh, uh, Rosh Chodesh, uh, not, excuse me, not Rosh Chodesh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we have the Vidui. We have the confession uh, of our sins. We confess that publicly and um, in unity with our uh, brothers and sisters uh, around us. The confession constitutes, as, uh, as Rabbi Monk says, confession constitutes the essential purpose of all sacrifices. The essential reason why we're offering the sacrifice is to confess our sins. We're not, uh, we don't have to confess our sins to um, a rabbi. We don't have to confess our sins to each other necessarily. We don't have to confess our sins certainly to a Catholic priest, obviously. But we have to confess our sins to God. And so I would say that even though we pray silently, there is power in the spoken word. And for one thing, what separates uh, mankind from the animal kingdom in general is that we have the ability to speak. We have the ability to articulate. Animals don't have that. You know, dogs can bark, cats can meow, you know, what, cows can moo and all those kind of things. But they don't have the ability to speak out words. And we do. And so we should take advantage of that. Not to say that you can't pray silently, obviously, but we need to confess. Also something to point out really quickly is that um, Rabbi Monk uh, brings down um, a statement from the Talmud and Zevakim 26b that without the shedding of blood, there can be no atonement. This seems obvious to us, but the reason I point this out is because um, I have through the years encountered anti-missionary uh, arguments, and anti-missionary is a Jewish uh, person who is trying to refute Yeshua as the Messiah. Really what they're trying to refute, actually, is JC, the Christian version of uh, the, the Messiah. Uh, and so they, they attack uh, Christian ideas. Um, we are not a Christian organization, so a lot of their arguments are uh, in, irrelevant right off the bat. Um, but this particular one uh, deals with us as well, which is that we believe that uh, Yeshua, as the Akedah, had to shed his blood in order to effect atonement for us and for all time, past, present, and future. And so sometimes the anti-missionaries will say that blood is not necessary, blood is not necessary. And so uh, I'm always astonished when I hear those kind of things because it says in the Talmud, Zevakim 26b, atonement comes only through blood. So I just want to point this out that um, this is absolutely a Jewish idea that without blood, you, ha you don't have atonement. It's just very that simple. Um, you don't have blood until you, or excuse me, you don't have atonement until you have applied the blood to the altar. Now, moving forward into our Aliyah, um, the Aliyah today, the Aliyah for the second area, I want to bring special attention in the few minutes we have remaining to um, verse 11, okay? Chapter 1 and verse 11. Chapter 1 and verse 11 says, He shall slaughter it at the northern side of the altar before Adonai, and the sons of Aaron the Kohanim shall throw its blood on the altar all around. If you've read the daily uh, 
uh, offerings and the in the section here of the Corbanot, you will notice that when it comes to the offering of the Tamid, the Tamid offering, the section is taken from the book of Numbers, chapter 28, 1 through 8. But at the end of that section, this verse is added. He is to slaughter it on the north side of the altar before Adonai, and Aaron's sons, the Kohanim, are to dash its blood upon the altar all around. So we have Numbers 28, 1 through 8, and then seemingly out of place, we've, we add a verse from Vayikra, from this Aliyah. So the question is why? And so Rabbi Monk addresses this. turns out that this is a very important verse, very important meaning behind this verse. It says, uh, He shall slaughter on the north side of the altar, and he points out why was this important detail given here in the discussion of the Olaf and the flock, and not in the preceding paragraph regarding the Olaf and the herd. Rabbi Hoffman answers that the Olaf and the flock was also used as the Olat Hatamid, that is the continual offering, brought each morning and evening by the whole community. According to, the, to most of the sages, he writes, in Hagiga 6a, this sacrifice was introduced, now listen to this, this sacrifice was introduced before the other sacrifices and even before the tabernacle was built. So it was really quickly on this point. And we're probably going to get into this again tomorrow because it's so important. Uh, this is more or less going to be the quick overview. Remember that the tabernacle was symbolic of the entire universe, the entire world, even symbolic of man. And so it says here that this offering, this daily atonement offering, this tamid offering, the one that was offered in the morning and the one that was offered in the evening, preceded all the other offerings, preceded even the building of the tabernacle, which could be um, allegorically saying it, was, it preceded the building of the world, the creation of the universe. Because remember, the Mishkan is a picture of the universe. So this offering preceded the creation of the universe. So it says, this is why the laws concerning the continual offering are presented in, in Exodus 29, 38-42. It is therefore reasonable to argue that the verses 11-13 through 13 of Leviticus describe the Olaf and the flock were actually revealed on Sinai immediately after the laws of continual offering. So, the Midrash Rabbah answers why this is such a specially significant uh, statement the, from the Olaf and the flock which makes it deserving of a fuller treatment. Rabbi Monk writes, This is because the daily sacrifice is modeled after the Akidah Yitzhak. The daily sacrifice is modeled after the Akidah Yitzhak, that is the offering of Isaac, as described in the book of Genesis in chapter 22 and verse 7, and chapter 23 and verse 13. Isaac himself took the place of the sacrificial lamb, he writes. Isaac himself, this is what Rabbi Monk writes. Isaac himself took the place of the sacrificial lamb and in turn was replaced by a ram 
both belonging to the category of the Ola from the flocks. Now, I'm just going to wrap this up. We're going to touch back on it tomorrow. I'm going to go back over it again tomorrow. But let me just say this, because <clears throat> talking about anti-missionaries, um, something came across my desk a while back, and it was anti-missionary in, in, in nature. And it was saying that uh, Yeshua can't be the Messiah because he doesn't do X, Y, Z, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, about the offering, okay? That he doesn't fulfill the offering exactly in every uh, element. Talking about the lamb, you know, and so on. So what this is, what I want to point out is it said, the daily sacrifice is modeled after the offering of Isaac. The Isaac was not modeled after the offering. So in other words, the offering of the Passover lamb and the atonement goat and all the other offerings are modeled after Yeshua, not the reverse. Number one. So we don't have to compare Yeshua to the lamb. We need to compare the lamb to Yeshua. Okay? Number two that it's a type. So the lamb, the atonement goat, the Ola offering, those are all types of the Akidah. So a type is not necessarily exact. But I also want to say here that we say that Yeshua is the Lamb of God. It says right here, Rabbi Monk says, Isaac himself took the place of the sacrificial lamb. This, my friends, is a Jewish concept. And this is why that verse is added to our Corbinot service in order to remind us of the offering of Isaac. That's the significance. Now we're going to leave it there today and conclude our Aliyah. But like, as I said, we're going to come back to this tomorrow and revisit it again because this is a very important point and it's going to help us clear up, I hope, I pray, a lot of um, misunderstanding of what it means to, uh, to have Yeshua as the one true eternal offering. And, uh, and it doesn't mean that we get rid of all the other offerings, etc., etc., etc. But we'll leave it there. End of our Aliyah today. I hope you have a blessed, wonderful, and amazing day. We'll look forward to seeing everybody with God's help tomorrow. And until then, be blessed and be joyful in the merit of Messiah Yeshua. Amen.